Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, the podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is March 31st, 2022, and it is my pleasure to have with me today the preeminent journalist and political analyst, Dalia Hatuka. Dalia is a multimedia journalist specializing in Israel-Palestinian affairs and regional Middle East issues as they pertain to business, economics, culture, art, and U.S. foreign policy. She also writes about religion, minorities, immigration in the U.S., and other things. You should be reading her work if you're not doing so already. You can read it in major outlets around the world, including, and I'm just going to do a short list here because it's just so impressive, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, NPR, BBC, New York Review of Books, Economist, Time. The Nation, The Intercept, Jewish Currents, The Guardian, Al Jazeera. Okay, so you can read all about that and you can see her bio and a compendium of her work at www.daliahatuka.com. And maybe more important, if you want to keep up with what she's doing, you should do what I do and follow her closely on Twitter. And that is at Dalia Hatuka, all one word, D-A-L-I-A-H-A-T-U-Q-A. As you maybe can tell from my tone, I am a big fan, so I'm a little like giddy to have Dalia here today. Dalia, thank you. Um, I have wanted to get you on the podcast for ages. Basically, every time you read an article, I'm like, oh my God, I want to talk to her about that. And especially you have an article that came out recently, which was the impetus for me contacting you this time, um, looking specifically at internal Palestinian politics and succession. So I, I kind of want to start off there. And I, for folks who haven't read it, the, the headline of that article is Abbas is destroying democracy to ensure his successor supports Israel, which is really like, that's a heck of a thesis. And I'm gonna read the final paragraph of that article, which reads, conspiracy may be too strong of a word to describe the political machinations playing out in the public stage. However, it is clear that Abbas's moves are meant to safeguard the political status quo in Palestine. And in a bitter reality for many Palestinians, part of that means securing a leader who is dedicated to protecting Israel. So let's start off with that article. Um, I, I'd be interested in, in your thought process and why you thought it was important to publish this now, what, you, what your main points are in it, and, and what sort of discussion this is, gonna, this is provoking. First of all, thank you so much for that amazing intro. I'm honestly humbled. I'm uh, likewise a fan of yours. Um, so this article, I wrote it like, I want to say almost a month ago, like February. And um, obviously, because of what was going on in Ukraine, we kind of had to push it back. But um, the folks over at Foreign Policy were kind enough to, you know, kind of keep it under, you know, under the radar and, and they wanted to get it published, especially because uh, Mahmoud Abbas um, celebrated his 87th birthday, I believe, in like, uh, I don't know, maybe a week ago. And so we kind of use that as a, as a news peg. And, uh, but the thing that, that prompted it was something that happened on February 8th. Um, there were these three Palestinian men who were assassinated by Israeli special force, forces in Nablus. And um, um, uh, you know, Israel said that they were planning attacks against the citizens and that their killing was necessary. And, um, but the, the killings themselves came at a time when the PA is under intense criticism from all sorts of Palestinians for maintaining security coordination with Israel. Um, uh, this kind of relationship has 
uh, repeatedly facilitated the capture and killing of uh, Palestinian fighters, whether you know they're wanted for attacks on Israeli soldiers or settlers. Um, and the PA itself, I mean, they're in a situation where they obviously can't retaliate. They they exist only so much as you know Israel permits them to. Um, and since even the mid two thousands, you probably you know obviously know this. Um, the PA has worked closely with Israel's intelligence and military to kind of crack down on not just Hamas but like other common enemies throughout the West Bank. Um, so much so that Abbas at one point uh, dubbed the security coordination sacred, with which Palestinians, you know, took note of. Um, and Israeli forces often like give their Palestinian counterparts like a heads up before a raid. And this was the case in the killing of uh, PA critic Nizar Banat. Uh, there was like a major um, uh, outrage uh, about his killing on by the hands of Palestinian security forces like uh, 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 last year. Um, but the killings also shed light on another important issue, which is uh, Abbas is basically now consolidate, consolidating power in like top political institutions of the PLO and the PA, which he heads, both of which he heads. And he's putting in his most trusted advisors. And they're basically men who are not, I would say, who are not like the most qualified to be in these um, uh, positions. And uh, this move that he made raised like eyebrows among you know, a lot of Palestinians. It reinforced fears that um, Abbas is paving the way for a trusted heir to take the reins following his demise. And like I said, you know, Mazel Tov, he celebrated his 88th, 87th birthday. Um, but the meeting where Abbas you know, did all this took place at the something called the Palestinian Central Council, which is like an intermediary body between the Palestinian National Council, which is the legislative body of the PLO, and the PLO Executive Committee, which is the highest decision-making body of the PLO. Now, okay, um, the, the, the point is, is that the PCC hasn't met um, in about four years. And it's historically, it's had like a monitoring role and it was never designed like as a forum to fill top positions in the Palestinian leadership. And so a lot of Palestinian factions denounced the move as basically a, a power grab. Um, and it reinforced Abbas's control what, on what's supposed to be the last check on the PLO. Um, and the session went ahead despite a boycott by like several um, Palestinian factions, uh, the, large, uh, the largest among them being, I believe, the PFLP, the leftist popular front for the liberation of Palestine. Um, throughout this article, I spoke to Moin Rabbani, who's, um, who you probably know, renowned researcher, observer of the Palestinian scene, and he kind of like explained it this way. The way he said it is that um, the Palestinian National Council by like, you know, by refusing to, to convene the Palestinian uh, National Council and by holding the PCC meeting under Israeli occupation, which means that the, the diaspora, Palestinian diaspora cannot uh, be a part of this important decision-making uh, forum. And by setting an agenda that Abbas knew would result in either the boycott or docility of those attending, 
uh, Abbas ensured the meeting would be nothing more than a rubber stamp of personal decisions that he'd already taken. Like we knew, you know, we knew that, you know, renowned Palestinian leaders like Hanan Ashrawi, who had resigned from her position in the executive committee in December 2020, didn't participate. Others called for the boycott of the meeting. And the PCC ended its two-day meeting really by doing something that it always does, which is recommending the suspension of uh, first diplomatic recognition of Israel and then ending security coordination with Israeli authorities. And no doubt they, you know, their um, attempts to assuage intense pressure from the general public. And of course, you know, nobody believes that the PCC recommendations are gonna be carried out because um, the PCC in 2008 made exactly the same recommendation and the PLO executive committee, AKA Abbas, didn't implement it. Um, now the PA tried to sell the PCC meeting to the public as an opportunity to set a national agenda that would meet the current, you know, political impasse. Like, you know, Palestinians face a political stalemate, um, uh, deteriorating economy, homes are being uh, demolished, uh, illegal Israeli settlements are expanding rapidly, expulsions of Palestinians in places like Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah, you know, continue to be a flashpoint but nothing from the PCC meeting addressed any of these issues. Instead, what we saw is that Abbas used this meeting to appoint his right-hand man, Hussein al-Sheikh, to the PLO executive committee. Now, al-Sheikh, yes, he is a senior Fatah official, but he's never been part of the PLO, um, um, like the, the PLO mission, mission, mission nations. I don't know what I want to say. The, like he's never been part of the, of the PLO, um, the entire PLO umbrella, you know? He's only been part of the Fatah situation. And, but he's slowly and, you know, kind of like been carving a name for himself as one of Abbas's closest confidants. Like you see him everywhere that Abbas is. And he's also been, been communicating and holding meetings with Israeli counterparts. And I think it's, I mean, not just me, but a lot of people believe he's trying to pave the way for himself as a contender to su succeed Abbas. The thing is, is uh, Sheikh lacks uh, popular support, um, but I also believe he's trying to take the role as senior negotiator, Sa'ib Erekat, who, you know, um, from many years, and he died, unfortunately, like from COVID complications two years ago. And to think of the two men, you, you can't help but wonder about the differences. And you, you definitely would not believe that Hussein al-Sheikh can replace Sa'ib al-Qat. Um, and, and this is probably like, you know, a little inside baseball, but um, I, I'm sure that people who follow these issues would understand that, um, you know, um, there, there are some like big shoes to fill there. Um, the thing is with Sheikh is that it's, he does seem to have the blessing of um, US officials. He does seem to have the blessing of Israelis. Like he's met with uh, Yair Lapid um, um, when he was still PA civil affairs coordinator. Um, he was also in charge of the office that provided Palestinians with work permits. And these are like work permits to enter Israel. So he, he has a lot of power in that sense. Um, 
But it's funny because he has also been meeting with European and US officials to kind of discuss bilateral relations and means to engage with Israel to revive the peace process. But in a way, he's also sidelining the Palestinian foreign minister, the prime minister, and the PLO and Fatah officials who are officially like charged with international affairs. And it just seems that the primary reason for his elevation really is, is that um, as Mohinder Bani said it to me, he's like, he's doing his master's bidding and he's thoroughly subservient to him and his very whim. And, and it's also important that for Abbas, um, that Al-Sheikh enjoys the support of Israel, the United States and the Europeans. Um, but anyways, I mean, at the bottom of it, what Abbas is doing, like his power centralization is ero ero eroding Palestinian democratic institutions. He's cementing his office as this autocratic base of operation, making it so much more difficult for Palestinian civil society to craft a representative political model in the future. Because if, if we've been following what's going on like in Sheikh Jarrah and, uh, Sheikh Jarrah and other places, there has been this attempt by Palestinian civil society to kind of create this alternative model to, to bypass Abbas and all these old you know, goons and, and to create something different uh, because obviously they're not happy with the way things are, are happening. And, it, and the PA is a major obstacle to this. Uh, so the Palestinian street is aware that the PCC meeting was a gathering to benefit a few that have little to no legitimacy with the masses. They believe the PLO no longer represents the broad spectrum of Palestinians inside the occupied territories and just as importantly in the diaspora. Um, I just saw a survey by Khalil Shikaki uh, showing a continued PLO loss of popular Palestinian support. I think there were like only 51% of those asked were um, said that they see the P uh, PLO as their sole legitimate representative. And looking back at the PLO's history, that was like the biggest thing. That's, that, that was like the, um, the raison d'etre of the PLO to be the sole legitimate representative. Um, and finally, uh, I just want to say one thing, like I, I, sp I spoke to one Western diplomat in Ramallah who attended um, part of the meeting briefly, and I quote this in, in the article, uh, but they said that they felt that um, the meeting was like the death of the PLO and, you know, putting in place those who don't enjoy popular support in the absence of any elections seems like a pretty clear way of making the organization irrelevant over the long run. And they said that, you know, basically the leadership is not doing a service to its people. And that was the diplomatic um, you know, way of putting it. Yeah, I, I, that is very diplomatic. I, I recommend people read the whole article. There's a lot packed in there and you covered a lot of it. I think what was really striking to me reading it is, is how much it sort of highlights this tension between the idea of legitimacy and accountability from Palestinians and legitimacy granted by Israel and the international community. And you know, it, this, the sense that, you know, we're, there's not going to be elections, it appears, for the foreseeable future, if ever, again, for Palestinians. I mean, I remember years ago, someone asking me about succession, someone in Congress asking about, you know, what the U.S. was doing about succession for the Palestinians. I'm like, well, aren't they supposed to have elections? That's the, the idea. 
Um, but this idea that that increasingly the leadership is leaning into the idea that legitimacy will be granted from the outside and that that is sufficient. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in whether or not you actually think that that will be sufficient going forward. How you think that will, you know, assuming at some point um, there is a succession, um, maybe going a step beyond your article. What is what are your feelings about what a succession will look like if the leadership is not a its legitimacy is not derived from popular support necessarily? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is like one of the most important questions that people have. And the funny thing is that Abbas himself, like, constant talks about the fact that he, he comes from a family that like always kind of lives beyond like the median age of what a Palestinian man um, should live. So he he's quipped before that his father like lived until he was 100. So he's very much aware that people are like, okay, dude, you know, time to go. Um, uh, but um, as he approaches the age of 90, I mean, you know, the question of who will succeed him remains the most important issue in Palestinian politics. Um, but his con consolidation of power um, uh, is made with an eye on the future. And his loyalists, you know, the fact that they have the approval of Israeli and US intelligence and security establishments has immense consequences consequences for the Palestinian cause's future. Um, the thing is, is like, we've seen how Abbas and, and you know, Sa'ib Arikat, like for example, negotiated for years with successive Israeli administrations and came out with very little to show for their efforts. Um, and instead, you know, what we have is like, we have Abbas and the uh, Palestinian political elite in his orbit. Um, I mean, you know, he has nothing to lose. This political elite is actually, things are working really well for them. So there is no kind of push or um, um, any kind of incentive for Abbas and the people around him to kind of change anything. Um, this is on the one hand. On the other hand, like Arafat before him, Abbas made it clear that he's not gonna name like a contender to succeed him. He seems very satisfied, like pitting, you know, several officials with an eye on the throne against one another. And the, the free and fair elections, which you mentioned, which should be the sole determinant of a successor, now seem out of reach. Like on and off for around, I don't know, 15 years, Abbas called for national elections. The last one was in May. And even me, I, I was such a sucker. I was like, oh, yeah, I can feel it this time. It's going to happen, you know? And um, he and he postponed it, and in he was obviously afraid of defeat by either Hamas in the West Bank, or I think more importantly, even rivals within his own Fatah faction. I, especially, I mean, I especially like um, mention Nasser al-Qudwa, Yasser Arafat's nephew, who whose movement was running against the official Fatah list in the called off elections, and I kind of appreciated this quip by him uh, wherein he said that you know um, you know he, he built this like idea that the the succession would be you know arranged between 10 to 15 men and they're all sitting in a dark room full of smoke you know and he's like that that's you know that's not going to happen that's not enough to lead to somebody presiding over the Palestinian people he didn't think that that was what was going to happen but I could totally imagine this kind of scenario where you've got these guys all like chain smoking be like who's the next guy you know um and so uh, honestly finally I I would just say that 
at the end of the day, Palestinians want somebody who will represent them. And we have seen on the ground that Palestinian civil society and like, you know, even super young Palestinians like on social media and whatnot, like everybody wants to move away from this, um, from this situation that Abbas has built from this like little conglomerate from, from everything that exists right now because they've had enough. They believe that it's leading them nowhere. And while holding elections under occupation is like not ideal, obviously, but at the end of the day, it gives people a voice and it gives them an opportunity to kind of say what they need to say. And I think the first step, like moving on from here is for Abbas to allow these elections to happen. Because I know for a fact that, you know, the Europeans aren't happy, the Americans aren't happy. A lot of money is being pumped into the PA with very little to show for it, right? Sneezing, it's, it's allergy season in Washington, DC. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I find myself thinking, you know, every time we get, we talk seriously about elections, I, I was an observer for the last two Palestinian elections, and, and we know the last Palestinian election was, which was very free and fair, and the results of which were then absolutely repudiated by the international community, so there's, there's that dicey piece of it absolutely. as well, um, repudiated instantly by the international community. Um, that's actually a good segue. There's three other things I want to ask you about, so we're going to be a little bit, I want to be a little quicker because I don't want to take too much of your time. So there actually were some elections this week uh, in Palestine, which people outside of Palestine maybe didn't even hear about. Can you talk a little about what happened and, and maybe some of the, the, the dynamics on the ground that were highlighted um, in these yeah. local elections? Yeah, I, I think so. What's interesting and significant is the fact that uh, so there were these Palestinian local municipal elections. So, you know, for municipalities, and the, the most interesting thing that came out of it really was that um, independent candidates dominated these elections. They won, uh, I think, up to like 64% of the seats. And this was up from like 37% five years ago. So it's a huge deal in that sense. Um, of course, the polls came like after, after, as you mentioned, Abbas called off last year's planned presidential and legislative elections. Um, he said, you know, it was because Israel barred voting from taking place in East Jerusalem, but we all know the real reason. And um, it's obvious from these elections also that there is frustration from Palestinian citizens towards the political establishment. So we're seeing a new level of activity in major cities by independent lists and groups, like around 70% of the lists are independent rather than affiliated with political parties. Now, some of these lists consist of genuinely independent political figures, but others like split from their own parties to run on their own. So in the city of Jericho, for example, which is, has been uh, uh, historically like a traditional stronghold, all five lists that were competing were independents. And, and generally, there seems to be an aversion to the existing political parties and people are turning to new independent frameworks, which are not the classic parties to kind of express their satisfaction. Um, the funny thing is that Abbas on Sunday nonetheless claimed victory, saying the results dem demonstrated renewed confidence in Fatah, which really doesn't make much sense because the, the numbers and the observers tell us otherwise. 
And of course, Israel never helps in this situation. It meddles in the elections. Like, I think last week they arrested um, one of the candidates. Um, I think his name is Islam al-Tawil. He was elected mayor. as ma- yeah, yeah. mayor of Al-Bire. Uh, he was running as head of an independent list called Al-Bire Unites Us. And of course, it was under the guise that he's somehow affiliated with Hamas. Uh, I personally haven't seen any um, any real evidence to that effect. So it just it just seems like really haphazard, and it, it just completely destroys like whatever um, advancement that Palestinians can make. Um, but it's also believed that the PA had also pressured candidates in an attempt to kind of dictate the outcome of the vote. So. The PA and its security forces like used cash and media ops in service of candidates who are in their pocket and kind of pressuring some families like through familial ties not to nominate other potential candidates. Um, but overall, I think what I want to say finally is that it, it's worth mentioning that the turnout overall was super low, like the CEC or the Central Election Commission um, certified a final turnout of like 54%. Uh, even though this was held in like 50 cities and and, um, um, and towns, uh, but uh, there was also no voting in Gaza, and and um, and we know that these past two rounds of local elections were held mostly because of uh, European diplomatic pressure, and um, it just seems that the whole thing reeks of of basically like Palestinians, you know, either shrugging or you know being like. Okay, I'm going to vote for an independent because I'm sick and tired of Fatah and Hamas. I I find these kind of these moments, things like local elections, a fascinating opportunity to gather some amount of empirical data about where people, how they're feeling about things, turnout, then how much turnout there is is empirical data, whether it's about apathy or disillusionment. The the fact that so many of the candidates are independent either believing that is more advantageous for them or out of a personal repudiation or whatever, it, it, I just think it's fascinating. Um, and, and my understanding is also just as a, just I think it's worth observing that according to, to observers, these were once again, the Palestinians know how to hold good elections, right? The CEC managed them, they were free, the, the, the voting was, was free and fair, it was overseen. The technical capability to hold free and, fa- free and fair elections remains intact, which is, pretty extraordinary given how rarely Palestinians are allowed to have elections. Absolutely. Um, so I want to um, actually shift gears to the current moments um, in broader political terms. And there's two things I want to talk about. And the last thing we're going to end with, and people listening to this podcast are thinking, when are they going to talk about the situation on the ground, which seems to be rapidly um, boiling over into to something very scary and very dangerous. We're going to get okay. to that last. The question I want to ask first, which maybe is not unrelated, is I want to talk to you about the summit in the Negev this week. Yeah. Um, this was the great summit uh, celebrating the Abraham Accords and the new era of peace between Israel and the Arab and Muslim world. Um, what what I, 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 I'm actually been waiting for an article from you about this. So since I haven't seen an article from you about this, tell us what you think. Okay, so um, I mean, for Israel, you know, Israel wanted to kind of frame this as like, um, as the establishment of a regional front against Iran, you know, this is what brought together like all these guys from, you know, Israel, the US, Egypt, UAE, Bahrain and Morocco. I think uh, Jordan was invited but declined and I don't think the invitation ever made it to the Muqatta in Ramallah, you know, 
Um, and so they're, they're trying to create the sense that there's a new regional like architecture based on progress, technology, religious tolerance, security, and inte intelligence co cooperation. Um, I think for Israel, um, Iran uh, may have been the first and foremost issue, but that didn't appear to be the case for other participating countries, even though they are concerned about Iran. But the funny thing is like, if, you know, if you're watching the closing uh, press appearance, um, they didn't mention Iran or like did so, you know, kind of nominally. I believe each country came kind of with a different priority, maybe for the UAE, it might have been like investment in tech and clean energy for Bahrain, maritime security for Morocco, education and agriculture. For Egypt, it could have been all of these, including like the Ukraine war effect on global food prices, which has been affecting wheat um, and not just in Egypt, but like worldwide. Um, but the interesting thing is that the only like mention or allusion to Palestinians was when Egyptian foreign minister um, Sameh Shukri expressed his country's support for a two-state solution. And he cautioned Israel against taking unilateral measures that might agitate the current situation. Um, meanwhile, the Palestinians are in this bizarre situation. They can't condemn this egregious act of normalization but they can't exactly stay silent. So instead the PA foreign ministry issued this like vaguely worded statement where they avoided, uh, where it avoided condemning the Arab participants directly, but they warned uh, them that Israel was using the meat to avoid dealing with the Palestinian issue, which is true. Um, you know, I mean, was the summit like historic or life altering in any way? Not really. There was an impressive photo op. There were discussions on uh, topics of mutual interest. There was a commitment to meet again, but there were no clearly defined goals, no durable, durable geopolitical objectives and no discernible deliverables. And also like a regional summit that doesn't include Saudi Arabia and conspicuously ignores the Palestinians is futile because I think at the end of the day, I mean, I don't just think that who's going to live with the Israelis? It's us, the Palestinians, not the Moroccans, not the Bahrainis, not the Emiratis, you know? And I think it's notable that the, the summit just, you know, was the notable thing about it was that simply that it took place, you know? And I think it projects like Israel's growing regional power. It sends a message of potential cooperation and conveys the appearance of a loose coalition that's unhappy um, you know, with Iran. And, but the thing is, it also proves the argument that there's more to the Middle East uh, from Israel's standpoint than, than the Palestinian issue. But this is really dangerously reckless. And this approach has been espoused by Israel in the past few years. Uh, more important than anything else at the uh, summit was like, you know, the, the absence of a Palestinian de de delegation. And here's an inconvenient truth. A summit that ignores the Palestinians is a summit that ignores reality. It's that simple because the Abraham Accords are not going to be a substitute to negotiating with the Palestinians. And Blinken said so, um, I believe he said something like regional peace agreements are no substitute to an agreement with the Palestinians. Like he was very clear about it. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, none of these guys have to coexist and, and, and live with 5.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, but Israel does. And similarly, Jordan is also in, in, a, in a similar situation. 
and which is why King Abdullah chose to visit the PA in Ramallah rather than send his foreign minister to the Negev. So yes, the summit has value for Israel and the Arab states in attendance, but it also made a decision not to deal with the Palestinian issue, making the summit, at least in that sense, a failure. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I will say from having the, the speeches that I watched, I mean, it really felt more like a PR event than, than a summit. The summit is, is dealing with, you know, issues in business. Um, the, the timing of it, though, is interesting, given where we are in the cycle with the United States, the international community, and Iran negotiations. Um, but this now ties into the last thing, which is the, the situation on the ground between Israelis and Palestinians. The, the summit itself is, is I I don't want to put words in your mouth. To my mind, the escalation on the ground, which everyone has been worrying about now for months as we approach the anniversary of last year's escalation, as we approach the confluence of Ramadan, Easter, and Passover, we have a surging settler violence in the West Bank. We have efforts to um, I will use the term ethnically cleanse parts of the Negev. We have efforts to ethnically cleanse the South Hebron Hills. All of this is ongoing in the background and then this Negev summit happens. And, and now we're also seeing this, this outbreak. Um, and I, I wanna be very clear for people listening. When we talk about an escalation outbreak of violence, what that really means is it's now affecting Israelis too, right? Because the, the violence has been ongoing for Palestinians this whole time is now affecting Israelis too, which now makes it news and, and also, um, and, 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 and makes people concerned of where the further escalation will go. So I'm not asking you to do sort of a crystal ball and talk about exactly where you think it will go unless you want to, but I would love your observations as someone who, who followed obviously very closely what was happening last year and you wrote about it. Um, you have expertise in the role of Jordan and all this. Jordan has, has always historically played a role in, in Tampa down um, crises before they can get out of hand or helping get them back under control. Um, so do you wanna just make some final observations about all of that? Sure. Um, so I think, like you mentioned, the, the, the trends on the ground, like what's happening right now is really tied in with uh, what we're seeing as this kind of um, uh, renewed um, uh, role being played by Jordan because Netanyahu had sidelined Jordan for many years and it, it took a toll on, on everybody and everything um, in the region. So yesterday, the Jordanian, was it yesterday? Could have been yesterday or the day before, Jordan's king met with the Israeli president in the first like high level but public reception of an Israeli official in years. Um, and obviously it comes at a time where there are concerns of, over, you know, mounting tensions in Jerusalem and elsewhere this Ramadan, uh, access to holy sites, uh, the threat of extremists, like taking advantage of the blocked path to peace, dialogue, or hope of improvement is both a common concern and a threat to Jordan itself. And the fact that the political space is closed with an iron fist in the West Bank and Gaza, and there's no traction towards negotiations from Israel is, is kind of seen as a combustible mix by Amman. And, and so that's why we've been seeing all these meetings, like Israel's defense minister met with Jordan's king in Amman. And they both made it clear that it was an effort to maintain calm in Jerusalem ahead of Ramadan. Benny Gantz meeting with Abdullah was his second this year. There were also like, other meetings, you know, um, low-level meetings. So Jordan is out there making a genuine effort to mediate, to engage, to ensure that last year's miserable events 
that culminated in a war on Gaza don't happen again. And Jordan is like the right um, uh, party to do this because uh, Israel and Jordan have maintained close security ties and they have diplomatic relations. But obviously these soured, like I mentioned, you know, over tensions around Jerusalem's like flashpoint holy site, the expansion of West Bank settlements, the lack of any progress in the peace process. And so this kind of might be a good way or a good time to segue into the situation on the ground. Things are super intense. Uh, this isn't to say that things haven't been intense, you know, like on average, a Palestinian is killed every few days and it hardly makes the news. We've got home demolitions, Israeli settler attacks. All these things happen and they are happening. Like since the beginning of 2002, I think there's been 51 Palestinians who've been killed. Um, yesterday or no, today, I think two or three others were killed. Many of them were shot dead, but they're by Israeli forces. But there were others like, you know, do you remember the, the, the case of the Palestinian American elderly man, Ahmad Assad, who was like killed under far more questionable circumstances? Um, he suffered an American, like a, a Palestinian American. Yes. And he, he was 78 years old. He suffered a lethal heart attack after being bound uh, gagged and abandoned in a half-constructed building by Israeli troops. And while a handful of like senior Israeli officials issued condemnations for the issue, um, um, Bennett wasn't one of them. And it kind of seems ridiculous that he wasn't part of, of these people um, you know, issuing condemnations because Abbas himself was sent a stern message by Benny Gantz's office to condemn Tuesday night's deadly attack in Bnei Brak, right? Um, and this is according to a report by the Times of Israel. Um, so um, what happened was um, three Israelis and two Ukrainians were killed by a Palestinian from near Janine on Tuesday. And I guess the PA, like Jordan, um, is trying to calm, calm things down as well because um, this was also, you know, this came after a series of attacks in Beersheba and uh, Khadera the past week. So again, a lot, a, a lot going on, lots of killings. And Israel says that it's been pushing for like a series of moves to ease restrictions on Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza ahead of the holy month of Ramadan that begins either tomorrow or the day after. So they're aware that things are tense. They're aware that like, the harder you squeeze, the less likely things are going to go your way. You know, things are going to be, things are combustible. Can and I, can I, can I just interrupt, just also two of the attacks, I believe, were committed by citizens of Israel. Absolutely. So can you address so that's an important that point. as well? Yeah, that, that's an important point because, because it kind of um, erases the green line, the pre-1967 borders, and it just shows you that things can happen on either side of, of, of this imaginary line. And that should be, that should be something that, I, I don't wanna like put fear into people's minds, but this should be something that we should be concerned about. And, and I don't think the amount of like entry permits for elderly Muslim worshipers over 60 to pray at Al-Aqsa, or you know, other measures aimed at easing uh, freedom of movement for Palestinians 
are really going to do it. The, the, we all know this happens every single year, so we should learn, you know, but we don't. And we all know that these are merely band-aids and that the issue is so much deeper. And Israel needs to take into account that not just when it's Ramadan, Easter, and um, a Passover, do you, you know, start thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I shouldn't be um, building more uh, settlements. I shouldn't, you know, uh, try to uh, help facilitate the expulsion of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah or whatnot. Uh, again, you know, uh, permits, yeah, great. Thank you for permits, but these are just band-aids and, and the issue is so much deeper. So I, I have like a hundred more questions for you. I was actually just looking for um, a quote to, to run past you, but what I'd like to do, I want to end it here. We're, we've hit our, we've hit our time limit. I want to tell you now that I want to have you back because each one of these questions, I think we could have devoted an entire podcast to, and I want to dig into this more. It is my fervent hope that I, I do not have to invite you back in a few months to talk about um, the 2022 war. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to see right now what the off-ramp is um, for folks who are watching the news. Um, Israelis are terrified, Palestinians are terrified um, and, and civilians should not have to live in, in terror for their lives and their safety and the safety of their children. That applies to both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, the, the, the violence that we've seen, the, 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 the targeting of civilians inside the Green Line is horrific. The um, responses that we've seen in terms of more West Bank settler violence aimed at Palestinian civilians is horrific. Um, and the kind of noises that we're hearing from the Israeli political echelon suggesting in effect that, you know, all Palestinians, whether they're citizens or not, are enemies and terrorists. Um, and of course, today um, we had the visit to the Temple Mount Haram Sharif by a Kahanist member of the Knesset who um, is absolutely views basically all Palestinian citizens or not as a, a column that must be eliminated. So it, it feels like all the pieces are in place for things to get worse. It isn't quite, it isn't clear um, what path might emerge as an off-ramp, but I, I, I desperately hope there is one. Um, but regardless, I hope to have you back so we can talk about whatever whatever is next in the news. Um, I want to thank you, Dahlia, for giving us your time this morning, and I want to thank our audience. Thank you for listening or watching. Don't forget to follow Dahlia on Twitter, at Dahlia Hatuka. Um, if you're not doing that, you are certainly less educated and have less understanding of what's going on, so please do. And finally, as always, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do that on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and that way you won't miss any of the great content that we are posting pretty much every week. And you can also find this podcast and a video of it on our website, and I'll include with that the link to Dahlia's website and some of the most recent articles that we discussed today. So with that, we'll end this. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you.